our voices in unison on this last verse. Lord God, we want to come uh, to you and do exactly what this song says. Glory to you, Lord, in the highest. And uh, Lord, we want to honor you with our worship today. Uh, honor you, Lord, as we open the word and learn from you. And uh, Lord, just be with us as we worship. Guide our every thought and every deed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so let me call your attention to, there's a little card called the Connection Card. We'd love for you to fill that out, especially if you're with us for the first or second time. It'd be our privilege to know who you are and how we can minister to you, so please do that. Uh, there's also prayer cards that we'll be faithful to pray for. A couple of things that I want to share with you uh, that the Lord has allowed our church to be involved in this Christmas season, and uh, we haven't reported on these things yet, so let me just... Uh, uh, now, this is not bragging on the church. This is bragging on God and thanking you for giving, okay? So, uh, back to Bethlehem, uh, the Lord allowed 20 or 225 of you to be in costume and share the message of Christ out there in Bethlehem, allowed another 120 of you to be working behind the scenes for a total of 345 of our First Baptist people uh, participating in Bethlehem. God bless you for that. But most importantly, he gave us 1,320 people to come through that we could share Christ with. And so praise the Lord. <clears throat> And then yesterday, Kevin allowed, uh, 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 talked about it a little bit in his, in his uh, time in Sunday school this morning. Uh, yesterday, I couldn't be there. We had a Christmas function to be at, uh, but I heard it was fantastic. Giving Christmas, we were able to minister to 35 families, plus uh, 36, I hear, because one family actually just this week had a fire, and we added them to the group. And uh, so praise the Lord, we were able to help out that way. Uh, so far, I think Blake tells me that there's maybe 140-plus people that physically helped, and I know many of you others uh, gave beyond that. So God bless you for serving in that ministry and, and uh, making, uh, uh, giving, giving people a Christmas that otherwise maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity. God bless you for that. Let's continue on as we think about Advent week number three, the humanity of our Lord.
Lord God, we just come before you now in this time of worship, which is also now a time of, of giving. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, Dr. Patterson earlier today as he shared with us a need in our church and that that need is, uh, can be met and will be met by faithful people. And uh, Lord, that's what we want to be today. We want to be shown faithful in our service and our worship and our giving. And uh, Lord, we know that if we do that, you will be well pleased and every need will be met. And we just give you all praise and glory uh, for such a great history here at this church of uh, every need always being met, uh, every need being supplied by you. And uh, we just uh, pray, Lord, we'll be found faithful to keep that, um, that legacy alive. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. come up and they're going to share with us Advent reading number three this week. Good morning. Last week, the second candle, the candle of deity was lit. 
Today, we light the third candle, the candle of humanity. This candle reminds us of the incarnation, God coming to us, robed in human flesh, fully God and fully man, to be our Savior, our Messiah. He did not become the Son of God when he came to earth. He has always been the Son of God. However, his virgin birth was a supernatural pathway God chose to bring the Son of God into our time and space and to live a perfect life, take the, take the penalty for our sins on the cross, come back to life on the third day, and ascend to the eternal Father in heaven, where Christ Jesus is now seated, making intercession for us. This is the gospel story that began in Bethlehem. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death, who were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Gracious Lord, Prepare our lives to receive your beloved Son as he comes to us in humble, simple, and unexpected ways. Let us love the humble ones in our time and place. Let us be humble witnesses of your power and grace. We thank you for our Savior, who is mighty to save. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior, our Redeemer. Thank you for being perfect in every way, without sin or blemish. The perfect, willing, and obedient to the Father sacrifice for our sins. No greater gift has ever been given than yours. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
It's always a risk when you date yourself, but in 1993, I was 23 years old. I was two years married, trying to straighten out my wife. Now, y'all know better than that. It was the other way around. But uh, in 1993, there was a really good thought-provoking song that came out called A Strange Way to Save the World. Some of you are nodding because you're contemporary with me. Some of the younger generation, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But the, the group that sang the song was named For Him. And I enjoyed that group. I don't think they sing together anymore. But that song was thought-provoking in the realm of thinking of the Son of God condescending to this earth and being born in Bethlehem. And it's the actual thematic structure of the song centers around the way Joseph would have responded or perhaps what he thought. The first verse says, I am sure he must have been surprised at where this road had taken him because never in a million lives would he have dreamed of Bethlehem. And standing at the manger he saw with his own eyes the message from the angel come alive. And Joseph said, why me? I think Joseph contemplated that. I'm just a simple man of trade. With all the rulers in the world, why him? Why here inside a stable filled with hay? Why her? She's just an ordinary girl. Now, I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but this is such a strange way to save the world. Second verse, to think of how it could have been if Jesus had come as he deserved there would have been no Bethlehem, no lowly shepherds at his birth, but Joseph knew the reason love had to reach so far. And as he held the Savior in his arms, he must have thought, 
Why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. She's just an ordinary girl. And he concludes, Now I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say. But this is such a strange way to save the world. We think like that, don't we? But God never thought it was a strange way to save the world. As a matter of fact, it was the only way to save mankind. We think about it from our perspective. And we look at the narratives in the Gospels and we think, Wow, that seems to be strange. But from the Lord's perspective in the text you're going to see today, it was fitting, it was appropriate that he enter into our suffering. And ultimately, we're moving to verse, thir- to verse 17, which will be next Sunday morning as we participate in that morning worship. And at night, we light the Christ candle on Christmas Eve. He must do these things in order to be our merciful and faithful high priest. In order to make propitiation for our sins. Hallelujah for the Lamb who made propitiation for our sins. But today, our focus in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, will be on the captain of our salvation. So beginning in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2, let's read. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The last verse we will see today, for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, folks, you realize that the theme of the Bible is God. Not man. It's God. He's the theme. However, if we're going to bring it to your level to think about how this text addresses mankind, we could say that the Bible is the story of how human beings, by sin, lost paradise, and how, by the death of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paradise can be regained. So Hebrews 2 really tells you how paradise can be regained. And that's why the writer will go back to Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you will care for him? And that's why the writer in Hebrews will take that for us to, give the under, for us to have the understanding that God created mankind to have dominion over the face of the earth in the book of Genesis. However, sin ruined that particular understanding. So we have creation, fall, and the rest of Scripture is 
redemption, right? If you're looking at it in three ways. So, what's key for this text is verse 10. Note the text. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The key verse is verse 10, I would argue, in the entire chapter. And I would argue that the key word is glory. Right? Back up to verse uh, 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with, say it, glory. Now verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory. All right, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to All right, in the garden you lost glory. Right? We are all, by one man, sin entered into this world. We're sinners by nature. So how is that glory going to be restored? Jesus. There is no way to have the glory restored apart from Christ. So, let's think of it another way. What would the readers be thinking when the writer wrote this to that audience? You understand the Bible can never mean what it never meant. It has one interpretation with many applications. So, he's writing to a group of Hebrews that have trusted Christ and they're tempted to go back to the law. They're tempted to go back to the law as a means of salvation. And so it would have been easy for them to say this. You tell us that God, the infinite God of the universe, actually became a man and suffered? To to us, that makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to have a suffering God. This text says different. This text tells us it was appropriate. It was fitting. It was the only way for you to be saved. It's the only way that God can make propitiation for our sins. Does our world today, in their frail logic, accept a suffering God? Of course they don't. And so what does the writer do? He eloquently turns around and asserts the cross of Christ as the most fitting, worthy way of salvation. It was not by accident that Christ suffered. Why? Because suffering unto death is your common lot. Because sin entered into this world, death reigned. And so, it was God's eternal purpose to save the world through the suffering of His Son. All right, that was intro. You ready for the text? Now, you listen fast, okay? And I'm going to preach at the normal pace. But you know me well enough to know that spanning 10 through 16 is a lot for your pastor, right? So let's lock in. If you're interested in the plan of God and why the Son of God would condescend to this earth to save sinners, I think we're treading into the holy of holies of Scripture. In many ways, it's that way throughout the entire book of Hebrews. But especially here, here's the first thing to think of. In your bulletin, there's uh, this major heading, the plan of God to redeem His people is fulfilled in the suffering of the Son. And that's what verse 10 says. We won't read it again, but it was fitting for God to do this. This was appropriate. Why? Because it's His plan. For our God has done something in the suffering of Christ that is in line with His character. 
We look at the cross and we may think, strange way to save the world. But for the Lord, this fits into his character. It fits into his purposes. It was entirely appropriate for God to do this. Thomas Schreiner, in his wonderful commentary, says, The death that Jesus tasted for everyone, back at verse 9, right? We can't divorce verse 10 from verse 9. Context is king. The death that Jesus tasted for everyone, verse 9, accords with the way things should be. It harmonizes God's nature and God's character. It is in accord with his holiness and his love and has accomplished God's plan to redeem his people and to bring many sons to glory. So how should we look at this plan of God to redeem his people? Well, the text gives us three things I want you to focus on under the first heading. All things exist through him and for him. Is that not what the passage says? For whom and by whom all things exist. So the focus here is that the son's affliction was actually ordered from whom and through whom all things exist. Can you gra- are you grasping what I'm saying? It was the plan of God. He made all things. He holds all things together. Ephesians 1, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 1. It's in Ephesians 1 too, right? But it's also in Hebrews 1. He created all things by the word of his power. He holds all things together. That God is the one who gave this plan. For through him and for him all things exist. God is both the end and the means to the end. He's both the goal of history and he's the agent of history. And this is precisely what Paul will tell us in Romans 11 verse 36. For by him and through him and for him are all things. So history is not man-centered. History is God-centered. And the writer, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is meditating on the way that God accomplished our salvation. And he's thinking about this. He's pondering the suffering of Jesus. He's thinking deeply about it. And you know what his conclusion is? Led by the Holy Spirit, it was fitting. It was appropriate. There must be something coherent and beautiful about our salvation. Have you ever just taken time at Christmas just to sit and ponder and draw conclusions from what God has done for us? And has it led you to worship? More importantly, has it led you to obey? In other words, the cross has sweet reasonableness to it. And because only God can satisfy the demands of God, only Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead, could accomplish this great salvation. The elders have been reading Grudem's systematic theology, and I couldn't help but note this particular statement by him reading this week. It is the great wonder of our redemption that God himself has provided the way of salvation by sending his own son, who is both God and man, to be representative and to bear the penalty for our sin, thus combining the justice and love of God in one infinitely wise, amazingly gracious act. Hallelujah. You may say it this way. God provides the salvation plan. God the Son, or should I say the Father, provides the salvation plan. God the Son actually procured that plan, and the Holy Spirit of God applies that plan to you. Hallelujah. So, God's redemption of his people, it is for and from the one who existed for all time. Second, God leads his children to glory. Do y'all note this in the text? 
before he shifts to the son's work, he's really talking about God the Father. And he's the one that's leading his children to glory. One goal of God's plan is to bring many sons to glory. The glory destined for human beings includes a rule that we're going to have. Why? Verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. Angels will not, l- will not rule the world to come. Who will? All those who belong to Christ together with the Lord. And so this is a reminder that he, the Lord, is bringing many sons to glory. And we should not miss that God is the one who brings many sons to glory. God is the one who does this. The same Lord, I think it beckons, it, it, it makes my mind run back to the Exodus. Who was it that was leading God's people out of Egypt? It was the Lord God. And here he's leading many sons to glory through Christ. Again, it's important to note that the author does not say all are led to glory. It says who? Many are led to glory. The tasting of death for everyone in verse 9 is not universalism. The whole world is not going to heaven. Only those who are the sons of glory who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. So, it's not everyone in the whole world without exception. It is salvation given to those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively. That's what the Bible teaches. So, in the realm of redemption, He existed before all time. And and the plan of salvation was through Him and for Him. He leads many sons to glory. Third, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Don't you love it? For it was fitting that he, for whom all, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make him the founder of their salvation. The word perfected in Hebrews does not mean that Jesus lacked something, and thus because he became man and died for you and rose again, that he earned perfection. That's not what that means. The word perfected in Hebrews means to reach a goal, to accomplish a purpose. So that Jesus was made perfect through suffering connotes the full obedience of his mission to come down from heaven at the Father's will to make propitiation through the cross. So perfection in the book of Hebrews has to do with completing the course, making it to the end of God's plan. Our Messiah is designated as the ark Agon in the Hebrew, I mean in in Greek. He's the captain. He's the leader. He is the very source and the author of our salvation. So really that word has in it a heroic note of someone who comes and blazes a trail through the wilderness and we get to follow. That's what it means for him to be the captain. All the path leads to glory. But note this, it leads to glory. But it includes suffering. It leads to glory, but it includes suffering. He is also the sanctifier and the one who consecrates us. The sanctifier and the sanctified, in this text, there's a solidarity to it. In other words, even though you and I do not yet have the glory and honor that's promised to us in Psalm 8, because we're all going to suffer and die unless you're alive and remain at the coming of Christ, Nevertheless, Jesus has come to the world as a human being. And he's broken through this futility of death. And he's risen into glory. And he's honored. 
at the right hand of the Father. He's the forerunner for us. He's the one that blazed the trail for us to receive the place where God intended for us to be. God did this through Christ. What glory is he talking about? Well, it's the same that is promised in Psalm 8. It's the same that is promised in Hebrews 2, 7. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Appointed him over the works of your hands. This is the glory that we've fallen from because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God. But now God has under, is undertaking a great salvation. He sends his son to taste death for all of us. To deliver us from futility. To remove condemnation and sin and death. And he's going to lead us to glory. That's what God is doing. But to do this, he had to suffer. He had to enter into this world in order to accomplish this. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, verse 9 says, is crowned with glory and honor. So here is our perfect leader. He becomes a human being. He suffers. He dies in our place. He rises from the dead victoriously. And he enters into glory. Why? So that he might lead many sons to glory. Are y'all listening? Through Thus, through the death of Jesus, God's people join him with the Son. In other words, he's moving you from earth. He came from heaven to earth. He's moving you from earth to heaven. He's bringing many sons to glory. All right, that's the first thing. Can I move on? Shall I repeat it? Right? Just consider this incredible redemptive plan. The one who planned it existed for all eternity. All things exist for him and by him and through him. And God is leading many sons to glory. And Jesus is the very captain leading you to glory. Let me just make this clear. There are not many roads to heaven. There's only one road to heaven. There are not many religions. Religion is man seeking after God. Christianity is God seeking after man. Massive difference. All false religions are false unless Jesus is the captain leading you to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus made it clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me. Second, Jesus, came, Jesus became like us to bring us to glory. And that's what 11 through 13 is about. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And then he's going to move to Psalm 22, which should be familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is going to quote this while he's on the cross. That's not what the writer tunes his attention to. I will tell you of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That comes from Psalm 22. And then the other two verses, I will put my trust in him and behold, I and the children God has given me. Those come from Isaiah chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. So, he's carrying on the fitting part. It was fitting that God would save us through the suffering of the Son. So, why is that the case? Because he shares in our nature now. When he came from heaven to earth, he took on your nature. So there's a solidarity. The one who is sanctifying is Christ. The ones who get sanctified are us. Right? So, both Jesus and those being sanctified, those being brought to glory, 
share the same nature. That was not true until the Son of God took on human flesh. That's why Christmas, the way we celebrate it, is so vitally important. The author says they are all one. Some English translations will say they all have the same father. Others will say they all have the same source. Some will render it, again, source. So, to say that we have things in common with Christ doesn't negate the distinctions. Right? There are some distinctions. You're not Christ. Okay? You're not Jesus. So, what it means for him to become like us in nature, he's the Holy One that was always holy infinitely, and yet he took on human flesh, coming in the likeness of sinful men. So we were the ones that were subject to death because of our sin. He wasn't. He could not be until he became man. So this is a remarkable claim that Christ is the sanctifier, and he sanctifies men. Why is this remarkable? Because the writer of Hebrews is beckoning back to Levitical law. And, and what it took for people to be clean and purified. And the Bible will tell us in Leviticus that only the Lord can purify people. And this text tells you that that Lord is Christ. That's awesome. That's awesome. In other words, those Hebrew Christians at this point would have taken a deep breath and went, Whoa, you telling me that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the only one that can sanctify people? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. It's a remarkable statement. It is because Leviticus teaches that the Lord sanctifies his people. In other words, we would say at this point that the writer of Hebrews has a high Christology, right? He puts Christ where he belongs, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the Lord who sanctifies. He's the only one who can sanctify you and make you fit for heaven. Hear that. Only one, Christ alone, he's the only one that can make you fit for heaven. That's the first thing. Jesus became like us to bring us to glory. We have the same father. We belong to the same family. One source, right? Number two, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Have you ever observed the youthful pattern of older brothers and sisters being embarrassed at their little siblings? Sometimes they're embarrassed that the little fella our girl actually even exists, more or less the fact that they embarrass them sometimes. Well, you can confidently say today, if you're a believer, that your older brother is not ashamed of you. Aren't you thankful that Christ is not ashamed of you? Honor and shame were foundational aspects of Greco-Roman society. It was actually a commodity to them of personal worth. So just think about the encouragement to these Hebrews hearing this in the face of persecution, in the face of accompanying shame. Why? Because they left Judaism and they trusted Christ. Why do you think Paul would say something like, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It was the propensity of people to look at the fact that they're leaving Judaism trying to be saved through the law, and they put their faith and confidence and trust in one who suffered and died on a tree. Cursed is a man who is crucified. And they put their faith in him. It would have been easy for them to be embarrassed or shamed. Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Clearly, brothers here does not simply refer to men. It's generic. It means brothers and sisters. And clearly here, brothers does not mean every human being that ever lived. Why? 
For not all human beings have God as their father. The Bible makes it clear you're either of your father, the devil, or you're of God, the father. So not all human beings are brought to glory. Not all human beings are sanctified. So the family of God is made up of those who are consecrated, dedicated through the saving work of Jesus Christ, through his atoning death, having made propitiation for us. So the writer will now quote three Old Testament passages. I'll hit these quickly. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it is protracted out. And Jesus will pick up the words of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But why would the writer choose that particular psalm? The, the quote you have is, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Well, what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Suffering. Is he not? He's talking about suffering. And even though the writer of Hebrews doesn't use, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still uses the, the psalm. So in other words, that means that psalm in its entirety would have been in the head and mind of the author. He's thinking about all of Psalm 22. Put this together. It was because that he did suffer. My God, my God, in death, why have you forsaken me? That's the reason that you're brought to glory. That's the reason he's identifying with your suffering. And as you move through that psalm, he gets down there and starts talking about, hey, it's not only my suffering, but I'm suffering for my people. And then... What a word. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That sounds like revelation. That sounds like the people of God brought together as a family. And Jesus is saying, you're my children. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. So the story of Psalm 22 as a whole is in the author's mind. And although Isaiah was the one who said it, I will sing. Isaiah was thinking about the fact that he was surrounded by enemies and only God could spare him. So I'll put my trust in God. Jesus Christ puts his name in there, the writer does, and he says, I'm going to suffer death, but I put my confidence in the Lord who's going to bring me forth from the grave. Right? That is the connection with this particular text. And then again, we have Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 22 was David. Okay, I went ahead of myself. Psalm 8 would be this verse. I will put my trust in him. Isaiah knew they were surrounding, but I'm going to put my trust. Enemies are around me. I'm going to put my trust in you. What was the big enemy that, that Christ faced? Death. Behold, I and the children that God has given me. And I hope you see that this is a glorious picture of the assembled church in glory. And the firstborn of heaven... The Son of God is before us. And we are congregated together as a blood-bought, blood-washed group of people. We're all undeserving. None of us are called brothers and sisters because we deserve it. You are not saved because you were worthy. You were saved because He was worthy, right? And so we're brought in undeserving, unworthy sinners. And Christ says to the Father, I will declare your name to my brothers, in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. So Hebrews 2.13 puts it like this. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Folks, that's profound solidarity. 
That speaks of what happened when Christ the Lord left heaven and came to earth and was born in Bethlehem. He did so to show that solidarity with mankind and to enter into our suffering. All right, point number three. And I can tell you now, this one could be preached in an entire sermon. But I got to get you to verse 17. Are you all ready? All right, number three. Jesus became like us to destroy through death the devil's power of death. The devil had this reigning power of death, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became like us to destroy through death the devil's power of death. How did he do it? Well, he shares in our human condition. Since therefore the children, what children? All those that God calls sisters and brothers. Are y'all listening? What children? All the sons that he's leading to glory, right? That's who, that's who we're talking about. Since the children share in flesh and blood, the children, it's a reference again back to verse 13, where it refers to the people that God calls to himself and gifts. You understand that God has given people to the Son. That's what this says. Jesus, so he says in verse 14, these children share in what? Flesh and blood. All right, just reach over, young people, and pinch the person beside you. Go ahead. Oh, I knew that was going to happen. No more, Ben, just once. Right? Right? What, what does that person share with you? I mean, my mom pinched me so hard one time, blood came out. Because I was acting up in church. I deserved every bit of it. Right? What do we share? What's our common condition? We are flesh and blood. Since then, we share in flesh and blood. The verbs are important. Since we share, y'all know what that word is? Koinonia. We all share together the same fellowship of a, com- a human condition. All right? The next verb, partook, not the same word. That means that you take on something that you did not previously have. Because you share in flesh and blood, the Son of God partook of it. He didn't have that to begin with. He dwelt in absolute pure spirit. No one has seen God at any time. The only son has revealed him. So he takes on this. So Jesus was actual God and he becomes actual man. And those verbs are important. We share in it. He partook of it. And that's solidarity. There's a bond between God and man. We can almost say like Adam did when he saw Eve. Bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. At his incarnation... God and man are all one in nature. And that nature is the enfleshment of the Son of God. Five times in the New Testament when the term flesh and blood is used, all cases describe a man in abject frailty that can potentially or will die. Mortality. That's what flesh and blood means. So he accepted our flesh, folks. He acted to rescue and recover us from bondage in spite of our sin and our terrible unworthiness. Why in the world would God Almighty want to put on a human body? You ever stopped and considered that? Why in the world would the God of eternity, the second person of the Godhead, want to put on a human body? Why indeed? Why? Because if we were to ever be like him, he must first be made like us. If he's ever to give you his spirit, he must first take on your flesh. If we were ever to become partakers in the divine nature... 
He must become partaker in human nature. That's the plan of God. We were by nature flesh and blood. But he became flesh and blood by choice. By choice. So the story of Christmas can and could be entitled an older brother to the rescue. Could it not? Jesus accepted our flesh. Our elder brother endured death and suffering to save us from our sin. Second, he rendered powerless the one who enslaves by the fear of death. Isn't this awesome? The same things that through death he might destroy. How did he deal with death? Is everybody listening? Through death itself. How did he deal with death? He dealt with death himself and with death he took the sting out of death. He rendered powerless. The word destroy here does not mean that he destroyed Satan. I wish he would have right then. But he's on a leash and it's not long before he pops his neck. Right? But at this point it doesn't mean annihilation. At this point, it means to render powerless. I like this definition. He put death out of business for the devil. He rendered it inoperative. He took the firing pin out of the rifle. I mean, it's still scary if somebody points a gun at me, but it can't hurt me. There's no firing pin in it. That's what it means to destroy. It's got the appearance of the threat, but in reality... It's an empty gun. It cannot shoot an intended victim. The power of the devil, again, is reference to, his, to who he is. And folks, here, here's the deal. If you don't take the devil seriously, then you don't take Jesus seriously. Why? Because Christ took the devil seriously. He did. One person said, when I entered the way of Christ, the serpent threw off his mask. When you get saved, you'll figure out real quick that there's an enemy. And he's after you. One writer, preacher said about Satan, he is one who uses people up and throws them away. He's a liar and he's a thief. The thief cometh not but to kill, steal, and destroy. And this text brings about death that's a huge part of the enemy's arsenal. It's focusing on death, right? But then there's this word deliver. Note the term to deliver them through fear of death that has been their lifetime subject of bondage. That's a long phrase. But does that not describe people in general? I'm getting close to landing the plane. I know this is a lot of information, but think of this. Is this not a sobering reality to everyone who's ever lived? That they're under lifelong subjection to the fear of physical death. An old proverb says, he who dies, dies but once, but he who fears death dies a thousand times. So we got the fear of death, which is very, very, very real. We've got the bondage that it fosters that is very real. But we've got a deliverance. We've got a transformation. He came not only to destroy, to render powerless, take the devil out of business when it comes to death, but he also delivered us. There's been a transformation because death could not hold him. He came forth from the grave. An old Scottish Christian said, Death has lost its chill since Jesus crossed the river. I like it. Right? The Old Testament had an anticipation of this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Note that even 
God's saints will sicken and suffer and die. The Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death. Saints die. People who know Christ die. But the death of a saint takes place in the sight of God. Hear that. He doesn't even take his eyes off of us, even through death. And God calls that precious. He calls that valued. You live today in a body that's like a portable tabernacle. It's like a portable tent. You're not going to be in that tent forever. However, one of these days you're going to put that portable tent off and your dwelling place is not going to be earthly anymore. It's temporal here. But when you go to heaven, it's going to be forever. It's going to be eternal. So the believing Christian does not belong to death. Death actually belongs to the Christian. It's your through street to get you into glory. Unless the Lord returns before that. But Satan uses death as termination. God uses death as a mere transition from heaven, from, he from earth to heaven. A godly man once gave this testimony of faith when he was on his deathbed. I have no fear coming to the river of death because my father owns the land on both sides of the river. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, one final thing. He helps Abraham's descendants. Okay, note verse 5. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. All the way back to verse 13, chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever sit, said, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we return to angels. It's an inclusio, right? It's bracketing off and it's helping you understand. For surely it is not angels. And, and helps is a good translation. It's not the best. It actually means to take hold of. It actually means to grasp. It means to seize. So it's not angels that the Lord seizes and holds and grabs hold to. He seizes and grabs hold of the children of Abraham. Abraham, Isn't that awesome? And he's coming full circle for us. Here are angels again placed in the argument. Why rule over the world has not been promised to angels. It's actually been promised to those who are in Christ. Those who are saved. Human beings that no longer live in the fear of death. Note, he actually doesn't speak of human beings in general. Freedom from the tyranny of death is limited to those who are the offspring of Abraham. Is that just the Jews? That's another sermon, right? No, it's to everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. Remember the old song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's the connection. If you want to read more about this, read Romans chapter 4, 9 through 12. Read Galatians 3, through through 9. Rule over the world will not be given to all who are the children of Adam, because that's everybody. Jesus came into the world to take hold of, to grasp, to help the children of the promise. And the children of the promise are those who are the children of Abraham. The blessing is limited to the sons brought to glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. It's to those who are being sanctified. Chapter 2, verse 11. It is to those who are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Chapter 2, verse 11. And it's to the children that, God, that the, God has given to the Son. So the promise made to Abraham, they're fulfilled. For those who are Jesus' brothers 
and sisters. Jesus took hold of them so that the dominion over this world that was originally promised to Adam would be realized in the children of Abraham. All right. Peter Marshall tells the story of a young boy about the age of four who had a terminal illness. At first he was simply sick and in bed. He couldn't quite grasp what his condition was, but finally he realized one day that he was not going to get better and he would not ever be able to play with his friends. One morning he asked his mother, am I going to die? And she said, yes dear. And he said, mommy, what is death like? Will it hurt? The mother ran out of the room, which we would have done the same. And she goes into the kitchen and she leans against the refrigerator. Her knuckles are gripped white to keep from crying. And she prayed to the Lord and asked, Lord, what am I going to say to my little boy? How am I going to answer this question? And suddenly an idea came into her mind and she went back into the room and sat down with the little boy in his bed. And she said this, do you remember how you used to play outside? all day long and when you came inside at night you were so tired that you just fell asleep on the couch and you slept and in the morning when you woke up you were in your own bed during the night your father would come along he'd pick you up and he'd carry you to your own bed and she said that is what death is like one night you lie down and go to sleep and your heavenly father picks you up And he carries you to your own bed. And in the morning, when you wake up, you're in your own room in heaven. Hallelujah. I think she hit the nail on the head, right? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So, Satan's hold is broken, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to death. The fear is taken away. Jesus came to take the bondage of death away. And here's what I know, and you should know. If I show up at the gates of heaven talking about how good I've been, I'm in deep trouble. Are y'all listening? I haven't been good at all. Thank you. (laughs) Listen, too many sins come crowding into my memory, and those are just the ones I can remember. I testify. That I'm a sinner through and through. And left to myself, I don't have a chance for heaven. Nada, zip, zero. Not going to make it. And if I show up and start talking about my good works, which are far and few between, the Lord will turn to me and send me away, and I'll spend eternity in hell. Because through the works of the law will no man ever be made right with God. That's not something I care to contemplate. Trying to share my works before a sovereign, holy God. So when my time comes to die, here's what I want you to know. I'd better not be spouting any kind of nonsense about how good Philip Burden has been. That will only get me in big trouble. What then can I say? Well, consider these words from the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. And Brother David has brought this out before. Here's how it begins. 
what is your only comfort in life and death? Man, isn't that a thought-provoking question? We need to go back to what was written in the 15, 16, 17, 18, 1900s. You'd do wise to do that, right? You'd have wisdom. But the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also ensures me of eternal life, and he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Folks, that's a sort of statement. That every born-again believer should be able to know and feel and maybe even memorize. You might want to put that on your mirror and look at it every morning when you're getting ready for work. For many people, death is a painful passing from this life to come to another. This process of dying can be absolutely excruciating. So I don't necessarily look forward to my own. Mark Lowry said that. I'm not afraid of death. I'm just afraid of the mode of death. Right? But if you find out tomorrow, during the night, that I died, I want you to know I was ready. And I hope you are. And it's not because I'm like some Terminator, John Wayne, diehard type dude. The type of death that I'm going to die, I'm not really happy about. And I'm not going to laugh at it in the face of death. And it's not because I'm all prayed up or because my life makes me a holy man. I'm ready because I know Jesus Christ. I'm ready because I know the one the Bible speaks of. And he has freed me. From the fear of death. Hallelujah. That was a lot, wasn't it? Don says it sometimes. Preacher, we have to go back and listen to it a second time to get everything in there. Folks, do you know the Lord? Not do you come to church. Not are you a member of the Sunday school class or youth group or have your name on the church roll. Just because you have your name on the church roll doesn't mean your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here's the issue. The only people that will have their names there are the people who by faith have trusted in the work of Christ alone on the cross to save them from their sins. Period. So I call you to repent and believe. Trust the plan that the Bible gives. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. This is the word of God. And the plan of God is that you can only be saved and sanctified through the Son who's the captain of your salvation. Aren't you thankful that he's your captain? Amen. Father God, help us. Lord, if there's someone lost today, may they trust you in your work alone to be saved. And Lord, your word says that, oh, death, where is your sting? Lord, you've, you've plucked a stinger right out of death for us because you conquered the grave. We know that on the other side of the grave is glory. It's glory. God, help us to think about that. And help us live our lives in such a way that we're not ashamed of you. You're not ashamed of us to call us brothers and sisters. Oh God, help us live in such a way that we're not ashamed of Jesus. We'll live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's join together in singing, Just As I Am.
Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to church family. This is Casey and Kayla Diefenbach. All right. Getting closer. And Brad. And then we have a little girl in the nursery. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. All right. You have met them. They've been here probably six months to a year visiting. And uh, they checked us out thoroughly. Uh, they went to the new members class and finished it. And today they want to stand before you and let you know they won't this church to be their church home. Amen. So we welcome them. So get, get to know them and covenant together with the, in the Lord to pray for them. All right. Glad to have you. God bless you. So back there, you know Don. Yep. Yeah. And we'll greet you going out. All right. And they're coming to us, by the way, by, trans, by statement of faith. They both have trusted Christ. They both have followed in believers' baptism. That's the way they're uniting with our church. All right. I got to put my glasses back on. I was supposed to read something, and you know what? I can't see it. Y'all have that problem? Oh. I see some of your smart alecks out there. Who see. But you're young, right? I don't think we missed anything else. Other than make sure you come back tonight. A very important time together as a church. We discuss our 2024 budget. We vote on our elders. I hope you'll come tonight and be here in attendance. Miss Kathy says we need two upward coaches. You don't have a choice. You have to do it. All right? Seriously, we do. We need uh, today. We actually need them. 
So one for third and fourth grade boys and one for fifth and sixth grade boys. Uh, I have to tell you there's a, 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 there's a percentage of people in our church who coach upward and then there's people outside of our church who coach, coach upward. I want to tell you that it's almost two to one people who actually coach our kids are not church members. I hate to tell you that, but we need to step up as church members and help out with upwards. So one coach for third and fourth grade boys and one for fifth and sixth grade boys. All right? I think that does it for this morning. Uh, Glad you were in the house of the Lord. Thank the Lord for his word. I hope you'll have a wonderful day. And uh, Brother David, you have anything else? Just a reminder, if you've got... uh uh, or if you, if, whatever plans you have for Christmas Eve, I hope you can join us. Uh, we will have a service here at 5.30 next week, and it'll be pretty brief, just candlelight, Lord's Supper, uh, cr- uh, Christmas carol singing, so we hope you can be a part of that. God bless you. Glad to have you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. Good to see you. How you, man?